George Trofimoff checked his watch. 4 p.m. The end of another uneventful day at work. Or at least that's what he tried to tell himself. Outside George's office at the Nuremberg Joint Interrogation Center, his employees were gathering their things, ready to go home for the day. Normally, they might all go out for a beer together, maybe listen to the latest Rolling Stones record. But today, he told them to go ahead without him. George went back into his office and locked the door. He listened intently as the remaining workers went home for the day. Finally, he was alone. He grabbed the binder of classified documents resting on the desk. Protocol dictated that George return it to the safe in the next room. He put it in his briefcase instead. This is Espionage, the ParCast original exploring the missions behind the world's most incredible spies and what brought their covert operations into the public eye. Throughout this show, we'll explore real-world spy tactics required to impersonate, exploit, and infiltrate the most confidential places in the world. I'm Carter Roy. This is our first of two episodes on George Trufamoff, an American intelligence officer who sent hundreds of classified documents to the Soviet Union while he was the head of the Nuremberg Joint Interrogation Center from 1969 to 1987. This week, we'll chart George's rise through the U.S. intelligence community and delve into how he went from being a loyal American patriot to one of the most prolific agents for the KGB. Next week, we'll examine George's stunning downfall and look at how he became the most senior U.S. military officer to ever be charged with the crime of espionage. This episode is part of ParCast's Summer of 69 event. July 22nd through August 9th, all your favorite ParCast shows are teaming up to commemorate the 50th anniversary of a landmark summer in American history, the summer of 1969. From the Manson murders to the moon landing, we're diving deep into the summer America hit a boiling point, with 23 special episodes across 16 different ParCast originals. We'll be digging into the fallout of MLK's assassination, a wide-reaching LSD cult, and rumors of a Kennedy family cover-up. You can find these specials, and more, all on our new ParCast Presents feed on Spotify, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. So let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. As several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. From the day he was born... All George Trofimoff knew was hardship. His father, Vladimir, was a former member of the Russian nobility who lost everything when the communists came into power. After the Bolshevik Revolution, Vladimir fled to Berlin in the early 1920s. Stripped of his former wealth, he scraped pennies together by playing guitar in music halls. 
but it wasn't all bad for Vladimir. He met and married a pianist named Yekaterina Kartali. Their son, George, was born shortly after, on March 9, 1927. But George was barely a year old when he had his first taste of tragedy. Yekaterina died of complications from throat surgery in June 1928. Vladimir was barely making ends meet and realized he wouldn't be able to adequately take care of little George. With a heavy heart, he gave his son over to the care of a fellow family of former Russian nobles who had fled after the communist revolution. They promised to raise George as if he was their own. Although George was well-loved, life was extremely difficult. He lived in a two-room shack with a tiny closet serving as a bedroom for George and his foster brother, Igor Zuzumil, who was nine years his elder. George could scarcely believe the stories his foster parents told him about the wealth and status they and his father's families used to have back in Russia. Every night, he and Igor would imagine the fabulous lives they would have led if the communists hadn't taken over. The two boys shared an incredibly close bond. George was a frail, sickly child, and Igor protected him from the bullies that pestered him at school. George idolized him for it. They did everything together. They walked to school, played, and were altar boys at the Russian Orthodox Church they attended every week. The beautiful, ornate church was a stark contrast to George's squalid living conditions. The gold-plated icons, inlaid with valuable gemstones, constantly reminded George of the life that the Communist Party had stolen from him and his family. The church had a powerful impact on Igor as well. In 1936, when George was nine years old, Igor left home and became an apprentice deacon of the Russian Orthodox Church. George was devastated to see him go, but he was happy Igor was pursuing his dream. Meanwhile, George's identification with his Russian heritage continued to grow stronger. In mid-1941, shortly after World War II erupted, 14-year-old George joined the National Organization of Russian Youth. During the organization's annual summer camps, George was schooled on the glory of the former Russian Empire. As he learned more and more about the country's history, he began to develop a deep and unrelenting hatred of communism. And soon, George got his opportunity to fight the communists who had driven his family away from home. In October 1944, when George was 17, he received a notice that he had been drafted into the German army. But he didn't want to fight for the Nazis. Many of George's Jewish-Russian classmates had suffered from the atrocities of the Holocaust. He remembered how several of them had disappeared from school, never to be heard from again. He decided that he would evade the draft and make a run for Allied-occupied territory. Before he left, George briefly reunited with his foster brother Igor, who had now been ordained as a priest in the Russian Orthodox Church. They wouldn't see each other again for another 18 years. After his meeting with Igor, George took a train to Pilsen in Czechoslovakia, now known as the Czech Republic, in December 1944. 
From there, he set off toward the Allied-occupied city of Passau, over a hundred miles away. But there were no more trains to take, and as a draft dodger, he didn't know if he could trust anyone to take him by car. If George wanted to get to Passau, he'd have to get there on foot. As George snuck through the countryside, he had to evade both the retreating German forces as well as the rapidly advancing Soviet army. If the Germans caught him, he risked being executed as a deserter. If the Soviets caught him, he risked being executed as an enemy combatant. Not even his Russian heritage would save him. If anything, being the son of a former noble would probably make his fate even worse. But to George, the risk was worth it. He was tired of the pauper's life he had led in Germany. He was willing to put his life on the line for the chance to really make something of himself in the West, the land of opportunity. If he could make it into Allied territory, he could rebuild the fortune that the communists had taken from his family. Over the next few months, George had several close shaves and narrow escapes as he made his arduous journey toward Passau. Finally, on the morning of May 9, 1945, George received incredible news. The Germans had unconditionally surrendered to the Allied forces. Although the war was over, he didn't want to go back to Germany. Even though the Nazis had lost, he wasn't sure how he would be treated as an army deserter. So he continued West. With the help of a U.S. Army unit, George arrived in Paris in July 1945, where he obtained an immigration visa to the United States. George arrived in New York in December 1947, but the specter of military service continued to follow him. In June 1948, the American government enacted the Selective Service Act which required all men between the ages of 19 to 26 to register for the army. Although he wasn't a citizen, as a permanent resident, George was required to sign up. But unlike in Germany, this time George was happy to join. He was eager for the chance to serve the country that had provided him with a safe haven. And with little in the way of formal education, he saw it as a potential career opportunity Instead of waiting to be drafted, he decided to voluntarily enlist. George quickly proved to be an able and skilled soldier. After completing basic training, he was immediately promoted to corporal. Because of his ability to speak German, Russian, and French, he was assigned as an assistant instructor at the U.S. Army Language School in Monterey, California. But with the growing tensions of the Cold War, soldiers with George's unique language skills were soon required in the field. In early 1949, George was assigned to a new unit called the 525th Headquarters Intelligence Detachment, or HID. The HID would be primarily engaged in interrogating prisoners of war. In late 1949, George received his first assignment, six months in Frankfurt, Germany, interrogating Soviet army deserters seeking asylum from Joseph Stalin's oppressive regime. 
Although the term interrogation brings up dark imagery, George's job wasn't to torture information out of people. The U.S. Army Field Manual on Intelligence Interrogation defines interrogation as, quote, the process of questioning a source to obtain the maximum amount of usable information. For George, torturing the people he was questioning would be counterproductive, not to mention illegal. His sources weren't enemy combatants. They were defectors trying to escape a bad situation. As someone who'd been in that situation, George was able to connect with them on a personal level, using his own resentment of the Soviet Union. It worked. In Frankfurt, George got an ex-Soviet army captain to give him up-to-date intelligence on the USSR's artillery tactics and extensive technical information. It was the early days of the Cold War, and an armed conflict between the United States and the Soviet Union was very much a possibility. In the event that war did break out, the intelligence George had secured would be invaluable. Upon returning to the U.S. in May 1950, he was quickly promoted to sergeant and continued to climb the military ranks. George was at the forefront of the quickly changing field of military intelligence and loved the opportunities that the military had given him. In September 1951, he became an American citizen, further cementing his dedication to his career. On March 9, 1953, his 26th birthday, he was commissioned as a second lieutenant, military intelligence in the United States Army Reserve. In late 1954, while George was stationed at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, as a Russian language instructor, he met a young woman named Frances. Their relationship quickly became serious, and they married in June 1955. Although George enjoyed married life, he hated his teaching assignment. He felt like it was stunting his chances at advancing his career and moving up the pay scale. So, in March 1956, George secured an assignment in Laos, a former French colony in Southeast Asia. The Laotian royal family was fighting a bitter civil war against insurgent communist forces. George's job was to serve as the translator for a task force evaluating the quality and utilization of American military assistance to the Laotian royal family. He was greeted with pomp and circumstance everywhere he went, and finally got a taste of the opulence he so badly desired. With every decadent meal he was treated to, and every gift he was given, George grew more accustomed to living what he called the good life. His inability to let it go would be his ultimate downfall. Coming up, George's love of the finer things in life gets him in hot water. And now, back to the story. George Trofimov's blossoming career in U.S. military intelligence was allowing him to finally experience the life of luxury he had dreamed of as a youth. In 1956, his assignment in Laos was like a dream come true. Everywhere he went, George was treated to incredible meals and given expensive gifts. Unfortunately, 
George's wife, Frances, wasn't able to adapt to this unfamiliar society. In late 1956, she returned to the U.S. and filed for divorce. George didn't contest it. George's Laotian assignment ended in 1958. However, his time in Laos had made him knowledgeable about the country's political, military, and economic situation. In January 1959, he was able to put that knowledge to use when he accepted a position as an intelligence analyst at the U.S. Army Pacific Headquarters in Hawaii. While in Hawaii, George spent everything he had in pursuit of maintaining the lifestyle he had become accustomed to in Laos, the lifestyle he deserved as a descendant of Russian nobility. On top of his love of fine food, he developed a taste for luxury automobiles. To take advantage of Hawaii's beautiful weather, he bought a brand new Plymouth convertible and drove it all around the island. He even was able to find love again, albeit briefly. While playing tennis, George met Edwina Lee, who became his second wife in the spring of 1960. But before the year was up, George was transferred to South Korea, and Edwina wasn't able to come with him. The separation proved difficult for the young couple, and Edwina asked for a divorce. George's ego prevented him from changing anything about his life to accommodate Edwina. If he had to get a divorce to maintain his lifestyle, so be it. After his brief stint in Korea, George transferred once again to Frankfurt, Germany in March 1961 after his 34th birthday. This time, he would be overseeing a clandestine male screening operation in which mail to and from the Soviet Union was examined for any useful intelligence information, mostly in relation to living conditions. Shortly after arriving in Germany, he met a woman named Alexa Richter. Although George's first two marriages had failed, he hadn't given up on finding the right person. He and Alexa were married that October. It seemed like the third time was the charm for George. They quickly had three children, Nicole, Natalie, and Alexander. George was obsessed with giving his family a life of luxury and spent every penny he earned on them. As his family grew, George bought a top-of-the-line ambassador station wagon, among other fine things. But George's newfound domestic bliss was tempered by the construction of the Berlin Wall in 1961, which escalated the tensions between the United States and the Soviet Union. Although he was now an American citizen, the Cold War hadn't diminished George's deep love for his ancestral home of Russia, a love that was strengthened when he reconnected with his beloved foster brother, Igor Zuzamil, in 1962. Igor had just been appointed as the bishop of the Russian Orthodox Church in Munich, only four hours southeast of George's base in Frankfurt, allowing him to visit Igor somewhat frequently. But if he knew what his brother had become, he might have been more cautious. Igor was much more than a Russian Orthodox priest. He was also a member of the KGB. 
Although it's unclear when Igor became part of the organization, the Russian Orthodox Church was closely connected to the Soviet government. It was common for church officials to pull double duty as KGB agents. Had George known about Igor's secret, he might have cut ties with him, especially after George was put in charge of a unit interrogating Russian and East German refugees in 1963. With Cold War tensions at an all-time high, any intelligence either side could gain was invaluable, and George's ability to connect with Soviet defectors made him an incredibly skilled interrogator. He was so good that in November 1968, George was offered a permanent position to oversee the U.S. Army element at the Joint Interrogation Center in Nuremberg, Germany, also known as the JIC. In conjunction with German, French, and British officers, George would be supervising a vast intelligence operation collecting information on the inner workings of the Soviet Union. With his high-level security clearance, George had access to the secret documents that the JIC generated on everything related to the USSR, including living conditions, political operations, and military strategies. Consumed by his work at the JIC, George now had little time to spend with his family. He tried to make up for it by spending ever-increasing amounts of money on them, but he refused to give them what they really wanted, his time. In what was now a familiar pattern, George and Alexis separated in early 1969 and officially divorced shortly thereafter. According to the Defense Department's Purser AC report on espionage, spies tend to be extremely egotistical and narcissistic. George's unyielding desire for luxury and his inability to sustain long-term relationships meant he fit these traits to a T, and his foster brother Igor realized it. When George confided to Igor that trying to support three ex-wives and three children had left him in dire financial straits, Igor told him not to worry. He had a special aid fund for Russian refugees, and he could use it to help George get back on his feet. George accepted Igor's help without a second thought. But if he knew what Igor was doing, perhaps he would have been more hesitant. Igor's assistance was the beginning of traditional KGB recruitment tactics. If a prospective spy wasn't inclined to support communism or didn't have a personal grudge against the U.S., the most effective way to recruit a double agent was through their bank account. The first step was building a relationship. As foster brothers, there was already a connection between George and Igor, but when they reunited in 1962, it had been almost 20 years since they had seen each other. Knowing George worked in military intelligence, Igor made sure they rekindled the powerful bond they had as children. The next step was for Igor to determine if George would be amenable to sharing classified information. He accomplished this through informal talks, when he'd ask for George's opinion on certain international matters, then innocuously ask what people at his job thought about it. 
Although Igor wasn't asking for classified information, he was testing George's barriers. When George showed no resistance to Igor's questions, the priest-turned-KGB agent moved on to the next step, ensnarement. George's financial problems were the perfect opportunity to get him to spy for the KGB. At first, Igor reassured George that he wouldn't have to repay the money. But then, in the summer of 1969, Igor came to George with a proposition. If he photographed classified documents from the JIC, George could receive a guaranteed stipend from the KGB that would permanently fix his financial problems. George couldn't believe what Igor was telling him. They had grown up hating the communists, and now Igor wanted him to help their cause. The Soviets had forced their families from their homes, made them into little more than beggars on the streets of Berlin. Furthermore, George was proud of his position in the American military. The United States had made George the man he was, He hated the idea of doing anything to harm his adopted country. But, on the other hand, nothing made George happier than living the good life. And at that moment, his life was far from good. He was reduced to living in a tiny bachelor apartment, barely keeping his head above water as every paycheck went to supporting his family. He tried to convince himself that he wouldn't be doing it to help the communists. It would be in service of Mother Russia. And he wouldn't provide the KGB with any information on American military capabilities or intelligence strategies. He'd only photograph documents detailing what the U.S. had learned about the USSR. George soon came to a decision. He would help his brother. Igor was delighted. Although discovering American secrets was the ultimate goal, knowing what the U.S. knew about the Soviet Union was still incredibly helpful. If any important strategies had been revealed, the USSR could use the intelligence George provided to simply change its approach to whatever the U.S. had learned. To get George started, Igor provided him with a brand-new double-frame camera, allowing him to easily photograph two pages at once, as well as a tripod and two gooseneck lamps for specialized lighting. In order to photograph the documents, George would have to smuggle them out of the JIC. Taking the pictures in his office was out of the question. The German military controlled the building's security, And even with George's position, he wouldn't be granted entry outside normal working hours. On top of that, if he was discovered with a camera at work, he'd be arrested in a heartbeat. George hoped that getting the documents out of the JIC would be easy. He already brought a briefcase to work every day, and the German officers who controlled entry and exit never checked it. Although there were security measures to prevent people from breaking into the safe that held all the classified documents when the office was empty, there were no real protocols to prevent anyone from taking them during regular hours. But still, 
When the moment of truth came, George was nervous. He tried to tell himself that it was just like any other day, but in his heart he knew it wasn't. This time, he had more than just his leftovers from lunch in his briefcase. He had a binder full of highly classified documents as well. If George was acting strange, the German officer who let him out of the building didn't notice. He was buzzed out with hardly a second glance. And yet, as George went home, he couldn't help but check over his shoulder every once in a while to make sure he wasn't being followed. When a police car sped past him, sirens blaring, he nearly jumped out of his shoes. Finally, after what seemed like an eternity, George made it home. He immediately rushed down to the basement. He had a lot of pictures to take. Coming up, George becomes entwined in the KGB's web. And now, back to the story. In order to stave off his financial troubles, George Trofimov agreed to photograph confidential American intelligence documents and send them to the KGB. He had successfully smuggled a binder full of top-secret papers out of the Joint Interrogation Center in Frankfurt, Germany, but his work wasn't done yet. He had to make sure the pictures were taken properly. George needed to be extremely careful throughout the process. If there was any sign that the documents had been tampered with, his whole scheme could come crashing down. He was so meticulous that when he had to remove staples in a document, he replaced them in the exact same holes when he was done. Over the course of several grueling hours, George photographed hundreds of pages of classified documents. But he wasn't done yet. He still had to get the papers back to the safe undetected. It turned out that George had no reason to worry. There was no system to track when documents were taken out or returned to the safe. All the personnel who had access to the safe were soldiers. They operated on the core belief that they could trust their colleagues to responsibly handle their confidential documents. They had no idea how deeply George was betraying that trust. With the documents safely back in the safe, there was one final step remaining delivering the film containing the photos George had taken. While George was fairly certain his work had gone unnoticed, he couldn't be sure the film wouldn't come under scrutiny once he passed it on to Igor. In order to make it look as inconspicuous as possible, he returned the film to its original packaging and glued it shut, so it looked like it had never been opened. The handoff to Igor went off without a hitch. Igor brought the film with him on his next visit to Moscow, and by the time the summer of 1969 ended, George received his first monthly payment, the equivalent of 7,000 U.S. dollars in German marks, which equates to about $48,000 today. As long as George kept supplying Igor with pictures, the money would keep coming. For George, the safe in the JIC became an endless treasure trove. Along with the intelligence gathered from the refugees questioned at the facility, 
It also contained important strategic information, including intelligence objectives, which listed current intelligence information required by the United States, intelligence priorities, which identified and ranked the current intelligence needs of the U.S. military, Soviet and Warsaw Pact Order of Battle documents, which detailed the U.S.'s knowledge of enemy military organizations and capabilities, and up-to-date knowledge of the USSR's current chemical and nuclear weapons capabilities. In the course of his espionage activities, George delivered pictures of over 70 binders, with each containing 400 to 600 pages of classified information. George quickly became indispensable to the KGB. Many KGB agents are assigned several code names over their tenure in order to protect their identity. Throughout his time relaying information, George was dubbed Ante, Marquise, and Consul. He was identified as the KGB's most valuable agent in a list of assets prepared in 1973. The intelligence George was providing was incredibly beneficial. By knowing what the U.S. knew about them, the USSR was able to stay one step ahead of its Cold War rival in its own intelligence activities. And as the money kept coming in, George found new luxuries to augment his bachelor lifestyle. In addition to his addiction to what he called the good life, George's profligate spending was also a strategy for avoiding detection. The KGB paid him in cash. If he tried to deposit too much money in the bank, it could be flagged as unusual activity and draw unwanted scrutiny. But for George, the money still wasn't enough. It was never enough. In early 1974, he told Igor he deserved more. Igor looked into this possibility but came back to George with some potentially bad news. A superior officer wanted to meet with George, face to face. George gulped. He knew that asking for more money had been a risk, but turning down the meeting wasn't an option. The meeting was set to take place in Bad Ischl, Austria. As George made the long drive from Frankfurt, he made sure to constantly dry-clean himself, the spy term for making sure he wasn't being followed. The constant checking of his rearview mirror and unnecessary detours put George's already frayed nerves on edge. According to the CIA's 1964 analysis on KGB tactics, quote, the Soviet state security service resorts to abduction and murder to combat what are considered to be actual or potential threats to the Soviet regime. As both an American intelligence officer and a KGB agent himself, George was all too familiar with these ruthless tactics. If the meeting went badly, George knew he might not have long to live. Shortly after George arrived at the designated meeting spot on the promenade alongside the Traun River, a short, square-jawed man approached him and introduced himself as Oleg. 
Although George didn't realize it, he was meeting with General Oleg Kalugin, the chief of the KGB's directorate, K. He was one of the KGB's senior most officials, reporting directly to the chief of intelligence. Oleg's main concern was that George's ability to obtain information wasn't compromised in any way. George reassured him that he had the complete trust of everyone he worked with. He was certain that he wasn't under any suspicion. Next, Oleg brought up the issue of George's decline in performance. George braced himself for a very unpleasant conversation, but Oleg was much easier on him than George had anticipated. He simply urged George to increase the volume of information he was delivering and to make sure it was actionable intelligence the Soviet Union could use to strengthen its position. He was satisfied that George was a dedicated agent and agreed to increase his pay as long as George delivered on Oleg's request. Once George was back in his car, he let out a breath he hadn't realized he was holding in. He knew this meeting was probably his first and only warning. It was time for him to redouble his efforts. To that end, George delivered a crucial piece of intelligence he had been holding back on delivering. The U.S.'s knowledge of the Soviet Union's order of battle in Eastern Europe, which detailed the placement and extent of the USSR's various military forces. This was incredibly important information. According to former four-star General Glenn Otis, quote, our knowledge of the Soviet Union's forces was critical to the way we laid out our defense plans. If they knew what we knew, it gave them an advantage because they could then change. Although George was happy with the increase in pay that came with the better intelligence he provided, he was growing restless. He was almost 50 years old, and he was getting tired of the bachelor lifestyle. In 1977, George met an 18-year-old woman named Marion. After a true-to-form courtship in which he showered her with expensive gifts, they married in late 1978. The newlyweds moved into a large house on the outskirts of Nuremberg. Because of George's exemplary service to the KGB, Igor was able to give him the 90,000 marks, or about 40,000 US dollars, for the down payment. Life was great. George poured money into the house and his marriage, making sure Marion always had whatever her heart desired. But three years after buying the house, George was again beset by financial troubles. In July 1981, the value of the US dollar plummeted, along with the German mark. Suddenly, George was struggling to meet his mortgage payments and maintain the lifestyle he was dedicated to keeping. Even with more financial assistance from Igor via the KGB, he was unable to stay afloat. By the end of 1981, George was forced to sell the house, and he and Marion had to rent a tiny place in the city. The downgrade in lifestyle was more than Marion could bear. 
Shortly after moving, she asked for a divorce. George wasn't surprised. He knew that their relationship was only as strong as his ability to provide his wife with a comfortable lifestyle. But even though his personal life was in turmoil, George continued to deliver valuable intelligence to the KGB. Sometime in the early 1980s, George gave Igor the CIA's intelligence targets from 1978 to 1981. This information identified what the United States believed were the biggest threats posed by the Soviet Union. It was such important information, it was given directly to the Soviet Prime Minister, Leonid Brezhnev. George's services were so valuable that at some point, he was awarded the Order of the Red Banner, one of the highest honors that could be bestowed to a Soviet agent. However, in 1987, Igor informed George that the KGB didn't need anything else for the time being. But George still needed money, and there were still classified documents he could deliver. He decided to keep going and accumulated over 25 rolls of film, each one containing over 70 pages of classified documents. A few months later, George delivered the film to Igor. Although his handlers were happy with the information, they told George in no uncertain terms that he had to stop and ordered him to destroy his camera. By that time, American-Soviet relations had improved significantly. The two sides were moving closer to reconciliation, and the risk of George getting caught outweighed the benefit of the intelligence he gave them. Although George was desperate to maintain the cash flow his espionage had provided, he knew he had to take his orders seriously. He smashed his camera with a hammer and threw it away far from his house. With his spy career effectively over, George had lost one of the most exciting components of his life. His health deteriorated, and in 1990, when George was 63, his doctor ordered him to take a 30-day medical leave at a five-star spa in Austria. It was just the sort of pick-me-up George needed. One day, while George was in the dining room, he noticed an attractive woman sitting by herself at a dining table. Her name was Yuta. She was at the spa to recover from a liver operation. She had been divorced for 18 years and had an adult daughter. The two of them shared a mutual attraction and met frequently over the next few days, playing tennis and sharing meals together. When it was time for Yuta to check out, he showed her how he felt in the only way he knew how a lavish gift in the form of black pearl earrings. After a year of dating, George and Yuta were married on October 23, 1991. Through Yuta's job as the manager of a travel agency, the newlyweds were able to get all-expenses-paid trips to high-end resorts all across Europe. This time, it was George who was being treated to the good life, and he was determined to provide the same luxuries to his new wife. George began to plan for his retirement, and in 1992, they visited the Indian River Colony Club in Melbourne, Florida. 
It was a brand new community exclusively reserved for active, retired, or honorably discharged military officers. George and Yuta loved it and planned to move there as soon as possible. In August 1994, 67-year-old George applied for an early retirement program that would give him a bonus payment of $25,000, enough to cover the down payment of their new house in Florida. With the finances taken care of, the move was planned for late December 1994. On December 14th, With the move only a few days away, George was woken up at 6 a.m. with a loud knock at the door. He threw on a robe, thinking maybe it was Utah, who had already left for work. Maybe she had forgotten something. But when he opened the door, he was greeted by a horde of German and American intelligence agents. They informed George... He was under suspicion of committing espionage against the United States, NATO, and the Federal Republic of Germany. He was under arrest. Next week on Espionage, a KGB leak threatens to expose George's illegal activities. With the law quickly closing in, he must decide if maintaining his life of luxury is worth risking his freedom. Thanks again for tuning in to our Espionage Summer of 69 special. We'll be back with part two next week. For more information on George Trofimoff, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Imperfect Spy by Andy J. Byers extremely helpful. If you enjoyed this episode, check out ParCast's continued retrospective into the summer of 69. From July 22nd through August 9th, the summer of 69 will feature 23 special episodes across 16 different podcasts, covering everything from Vietnam War protests to the Zodiac Killer. Be sure to check it out on our new ParCast Presents feed on Spotify or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll be back next week with another deep dive into the world of clandestine operation. Espionage was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Paul Liebeskin. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Espionage is written by Alex Benedin. I'm Carter Roy.